You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. That was aggressive, aggressive. Sorry, sorry. That was very warm. You guys are so kind. What a, wow, what a just an opportunity and an honor to be a part. Um, Sam and Jordan just have invited me to their home and having known them for so long and watching like their ministry even progress and the, the relationships, I love I absolutely love how the gospel is relational, and what it does is as we grow in relationship together, we get to do more (laughs) that expresses the hope of the gospel we have because of those relationships, right? Isn't that cool? Maybe that's just cool to me. You guys don't care. You're just kind of hanging out. Is it okay if this is not your traditional, like, three-point message? I would love, given this little window of time, there will never be, I was discussing this with Sam and Jordan the other night, there will never be another moment in the history of the world that this gathering of people is established right here. And I believe that in that, in that God's intention is that we grow as the church and we are launched out to do things throughout the week and around the world. And so I don't want to take for granted the opportunity to be here with you. Um, after service, I have to leave immediately and get to the airport because I have a 2 o'clock flight to Florida where I have to be tonight. And uh, But to be here with you today is really an incredible honor. And to just, like, have spent a couple hours with these guys, with Ty and with uh, Daniel and Kayla and some of these people just getting to know just the heart of East Point here in this community. You guys are living as missionaries here, and that is evident. And that is evident in the way that people perceive you. And it's really awesome. So thank you for letting me come. Uh, I hope it's okay that this, I make this kind of more like, like we're all just in the living room, cuddling and telling stories. Maybe no cuddling. Leave the cuddling out, but I, I don't know why I said cuddling. I was a homeschooler, so if I'm awkward, like, that was a part of my upbringing. We, I, I told the first service, like, this will just give you a window into the way I was raised. We had two goats named Peter and Lucy, because that was the names from the characters from Narnia. So, thanks for, thanks for uh, welcoming me. I did go to actual public school at one point, though, so I, like, normalized a little bit. Uh, just seeing how long I can play that joke out and keep you guys, you guys, I, I can't, I'm trying to get a read on who you are here. So, um, I'm going to just share who I am, essentially, and what brought me to the point of what we've been doing for the last couple decades. Uh, he, he already gave you the window into, I had a rock band. I'll give you a little, like, precursor to that, and then how that turned into a sending missionary organization. And then I'd love to with uh, use this time to share a little bit about what God is doing around the world at this moment, in part because of what you guys have already given to. Uh, and then I'm going to share the hope of the gospel that we have from the Word of God, because there's, there's not a moment we gather as the church that we shouldn't be relying on the Word of God, and this is a way we get to do that. It's literally right here, right now. We get to see what God's doing, be transformed by the gospel, and be sent to live on mission. That's like the missionary mentality within us, right? And so, uh, in fact, it's the great commission, like that we're sent, we're authoritatively sent. And so, as I kind of describe these things, that's that. That's the plan, right? You get to know me, I show you what's happening around the world, and then we see what God's intention is for us as the church. And so, uh, he already gave you a little context. I am married, I've been married, June will be for 18 years. Oh. Sadly, they're not here with me. My wife is back. I live right outside Portland, Oregon. Uh, that's how I got to know Sam and Jordan when they served at a church over there. We were attending that church, and uh, I was not attending very frequently because I was out around the world in a rock band sharing the gospel. Uh, but we got to know them over that time. My wife is over there. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old little baby redhead girl named May. Aww. 
She's adorable. Uh, she just learned to walk, and so she's just, or she learned to walk a while ago. But now she learns to, like, sprint and stand on the coffee table and dance and stress us all out. So uh, none of you have kids, I'm sure, and have ever dealt with those things. Um, so I, I did grow up, as I mentioned, in kind of a small town in rural Washington with goats and chickens. And, and so to end up going from that lane to being a guy pl- standing on stages playing rock and roll, the, the transition there happened like this. I knew how to do something, and that was just I knew how to play guitar. <laughs> and I only knew how to play guitar because I went to a small church where my mom, when I was like 15, was like, hey, nobody's leading worship this next week. You are. And she handed me this guitar. I was like, but mom, I don't play guitar. She said, you will on Wednesday. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like a classic homeschool mom if you didn't understand that concept. And so I figured it out, and I played some songs. And over the course of the next years, my brothers and I started a rock band, because that's what you do. You start a rock band and play music. And so we kept doing that, and we would play worship here, and we'd go to a conference over here, and we'd go to a rock show in a bar over here. And we wrote all these songs, and they were very declarative in their nature. Like, we wrote songs so that we could share the gospel using it. And so as we started playing in these bars, and we started playing in these little rock shows, and touring up and down the West Coast, God kept opening doors. And we got invited to go to Canada once. Um, I'm giving you a little more than I gave the first service. I hope that's okay. <laughs> a little more backstory here. We got to Canada to play at the, the Winter Olympics for, uh, like, we were doing just outreach. So we were playing at shows and concert halls and stuff. But then one day we were playing um, uh, on the streets, just like busking is what it's called. We'd play on the streets. We'd set up a sound system kind of like this. Like we'd have a generator 500 feet away and we'd run it to the sound system. And by the time we'd have stuff set up, there'd be 2,000 people sitting just to see what we were about to do. Like, wow, okay. So we'd play rock and roll, we'd preach the gospel. We'd play rock and roll, preach the gospel. Play rock and roll, preach the gospel. And people would, you know, it's outside. So people would come and go like every five to ten minutes. They'd watch a song or two. But every person who walked away had heard the gospel, right? And that was so fun for us. And the Lord was opening doors. And then as we were packing up that day, this guy comes up and he goes, this is my French accent. Hello, I am the... uh, the hospitality director for the French um, team for the Olympics. Would you come play for us? I spend a lot of time in France, so I love trying to like. Actually, if you're in France, here's a little pro tip, and you don't know how to say a word in French, just try and say it with a French accent. And they go, "Oh, oui, oui, yes, and that's no problem." Like, <laughs> like I was looking for a car battery in rural France. I was like, um, "Avez-vous un auto battery?" And they're like, "Oui, yeah, it worked." <laughs> so. <laughs> So uh, uh, you could think I'm mocking them. I'm actually just trying to understand. Um, So this guy comes up and he invites us. He's the director of hospitality for the French Olympic team. And he invites us to come into the French Olympic mansion in the, the Olympic village and play a rock show for all of the people after the closing ceremonies. And closing ceremonies was like Nickelback and Celine Dion. And then they came and watched this little rock band in a room like this size. I'm like, this is... How are we even going to like pale, and we're going to pale in comparison to what they just, the, sh- the biggest show in the world that they just came from. But what we did is we set up a stage like this and we played the gospel, or we played the rock songs, and the ice skating champion of the world was our translator. <laughs> so he stood on the stage and I would like tell them why we were a band that swung guitars and played rock and roll. And then he would tell them, and then I would tell them like, we do this because we 
our relationship with Jesus has changed the way we view people. He would translate that. I got to share the gospel with the whole French team, the whole delegation, all these people. And it was like this moment, this was back in like 2010, where our band realized like we can do this anywhere in the world. <laughs> because if we can communicate the hope of the gospel concisely in a paragraph through someone, we can share that and use the thing we know how to do, which is spinning our guitars and jumping off boxes and turning up our guitar amps. We can use that to share the hope of the gospel with people who've never heard it before. France, for example, is a, a country where 99% of people who live in Paris, a city of about 13 to 15 million, if you include the suburbs, 99% of people in France have no active relationship with Jesus. It's a less than 1% country of Bible-believing Christians. And so every person we share the gospel with is hearing it oftentimes for the first time or presented in a new way with an invitation to respond that, that challenges them or that catches them off guard. And so we said, let's just keep doing that. So we went to Europe, and then we went to South Africa, and we went to Japan, and we went to Mexico and Belize, and anywhere we could find power and electricity to plug in our guitar amps, we would go there and preach the gospel. And sometimes the shows were enormous, and sometimes it was 10 people in a classroom. <laughs> there was a place in Denmark we played where we'd get invited to the prison for all of their, like, murderers, like their highest security prison. And so they would only allow 10 people in the room at a time so they wouldn't start fights. So we had to play the same concert six times at a prison, like, with 10 new prisoners, they take them out. 10 new prisoners, play the concert, take them out. 10 new prisoners. But like in every context, all we were doing was what we knew how to do and using that method to express the hope of the gospel to people that we could encounter because of the relationship it opened up. And so as we were doing that, we kept finding other people who said, well, I, I don't know how to do, I'm not a missionary. All I know how to do is pour latte art. <laughs> There's this one lady, her name's Ashley, she's amazing, she's from Oregon. She was like, I have a heart for missions, but I wasn't trained, I know how to pour latte art, is there anywhere I can do that and share the gospel? <laughs> and we're like, well actually, there's a church in Mexico that wants to start a coffee shop. It's not weird to say, just get in the van with us and come to Mexico. So like a 21-year-old blonde girl who's like this tall, who's like, get in the van with the rock, van with the rock band and let's go to Mexico. She did it. <laughs> and her heart kind of broke for those people and she... She basically just stayed. She didn't come back with us. <laughs> and, and she raised like 500 bucks through PayPal, and we would like help her get the money. And, and then she didn't speak a word of Spanish. Uh, now, five, six, seven, eight years later, I don't remember what year that was, um, she's married to a, a Mexican guy, speaks fluent Spanish, helps influence the entire coffee culture on the west coast of Mexico by literally just going and doing what she knew how to do and pouring latte art and loving people and expressing the gospel through those conversations that came from that. That is our job as the church, church, <laughs> is to use those things that God has equipped us with to preach the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And so as we kept doing that and we kept finding the Ashleys and finding other rock bands and finding these people, that's how we started a missions organization. It was on purpose, but it was also kind of on accident. <laughs> because we were just people who didn't fit in a normal box. Some of us were like, we feel called to plant a church in Spain, and so we'd send them over there. We feel called to do this, and we want to start a coffee shop in Pristina, Kosovo, and so we sent them over there. And that's how we got to now 120 people operating in, I think, 17 countries today uh, that are using various methods to preach the hope of Jesus. That's why we call the organization a Jesus mission. <laughs> It's simple. It's the mission of Christ. <laughs> We're going to read the story of Zacchaeus in a little bit. That's the text that I want to share with you. But at the end it says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I uh, understand it in this way. We've been given the great commission. We are a sent people. <laughs> if we have understood and responded to the gospel, our correct 
an immediate response should be to go. That doesn't mean every one of you goes to Kosovo and plants a coffee shop in a Muslim nation, but maybe it means you love the people that live next door to you. Or maybe it changes the way you interact with your spouse or your kids because the gospel is transforming who you are. Does that make sense? Does the, the direction I'm pointing make sense to you guys? Because I, wa I want it to be super conversational because I want you to understand why we're doing the very things we're doing. And so I'm not looking at my notes. I'm just like sharing the way we kind of got to where we are. As a Jesus mission grew, we kept finding all these people, and now we, like, are actively recruiting. We're always looking, like, do you, you got something? You got something you want to do that, like, God could use to, <laughs> to share the gospel in some other part of the world? Let's get to work. And it's by doing that that we've just seen God continue to bless it and continue to open doors and continue opening new windows. Now, I also, the side, my side hustle <laughs> is I lead worship at a church in San Diego. So I fly from Portland to San Diego on Saturday, lead worship on Sunday, fly home, and then I do that, like this stuff the rest of the time. The reason I travel like this is to go out and involve the people of God <laughs> with what God is doing. I, I love the way Sam phrased it. He's like, the invitation is you come here, not me coming, asking you to be involved. And I'm not even going to make an ask of you today, but I, I hope that the gospel challenges you to get involved. And I, I want you to see the way that we are responding because of what the gospel has done in us and through us and how it's transformed the way we view people. I, I really, truly believe that when the gospel is fully lived out, like, it changes the way we interact with other people. My nature is not to love other people. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. I'm not a very introverted guy. Some of you are like, I'm introverted. That is, that, you just described me to a T. But my nature, when I encounter someone who's asking for something, or I live in Portland area and I step over a homeless person to continue trying to get coffee with my wife, my nature is not to look them in the eye and go, hey, how's your day? <laughs> is it just me? No? Just me. Okay. That's the way the gospel transforms the way we interact with people. And the gospel creates opportunities for us to do things for them uh, and, and alongside them that invite them into relationship with us, which allows open doors for a relationship for the gospel to make sense. For the gospel, that didn't make sense, but you get the point. I think I want to share a video with you here in a second because one of, and I'm going to give you a little context to the video. Um, as the war in Ukraine broke out, um, and he already told you, like, you guys have been involved in this alongside us. But as the war in Ukraine broke out, we have those 120 missionaries around the world. But a large gathering of them are in Kosovo, is in Romania, is in Hungary, is in Poland. Like, we have, and inside Ukraine, we don't have any missionaries that are, like, a part of our organization inside Ukraine. But we have hundreds of friends inside Ukraine. My band would work alongside all these other bands, uh, and we would go into these countries and share the gospel. And so over the years of doing that, we've built all these relationships. We've played concerts in Lviv and Ternopil and Mariupol and, like, uh, Kharkiv and all these cities that you're hearing in the news right now. We've played concerts there and shared the gospel. And so our, our immediate response was we have to do something, but what do we do? <laughs> what do you, how do you respond in this moment? And so my little brother lives in Budapest, Hungary. He's one of the missionaries. And... He lives in Budapest, Hungary with his wife, and, and he just works a normal day job and works alongside Hungarian people and gets to, like, he's been leading, like, people to Jesus that were Muslims and all these things just by living among them, right? And so he just would start going to the train station with some of his non-believing coworkers. <laughs> After they'd get off work, they'd all go to the train station, and as people would come off, they'd be like, they'd have snacks or water or all these things. And he met one, one group of guys who played football, uh, soccer for us Americans. They played football in Ukraine, and they had walked for six days with no food to try and escape the war. They'd walked from 
like the east all the way across the country because there was no cars at this point. People, like it was just sheer chaos in the first weeks of the war. The first 10 days. And so as he stood at the train station and greeted them and he gave them like all the money in his pocket to go buy pizza. And they're like, why are you standing here (laughs) like giving us your money? And that is a window of opportunity for us to go, well, we love you because Jesus loved us first. Right? Our response to your suffering is not motivated out of our hope that we can just solve some temporary thing. Humanitarian aid through the lens of the world is temporal. All the things that the world does that governments build up to go and try and solve problems, it is a temporary fix. Our opportunity as the church, when we get to respond to humanitarian moments, our perspective is eternal. Right? And so we do things differently because the gospel changes the way we view people and where they're going to spend eternity. And so that's why our missionaries will stand there at the train station going, let me buy you a piece of pizza and just tell me your stories. (laughs) These people oftentimes have been like, shocked that so many people are welcoming them. Well, over the course of that next couple weeks, we had some of our missionaries drive up, and they spent like three or four days driving every inch of the um, Romanian border, because there was some assistance, some of the churches we work with and the network we're working alongside over in Europe, um, they were doing stuff up in Poland, they'd kind of found a way to get stuff from Poland, uh, Krakow, Poland, into Lviv and into Ternopil, and so they were running supplies there, and and, but then there was this risk that um, up in Belarus, the Russians might cut off that Poland route, and we're going, like, how can we, like, continue funneling supplies and being people that are responding, and so we said, we, we need to just go to Romania. And so we searched Romania. We found like where there was refugee stuff going on and we found a church that was kind of similar to this. And they said, well, we have a gym. We have no money because Romania is quite a poor country if you've ever been there. The average Romanian living in the city makes like 500 euro a month to live off of. And so they're like not, they're like, we have this building, but we don't have anything we can do with it yet. And so we were able, using that very first amount of money that we got, like that we'd raised to go start helping, we bought like a hundred mattresses and like all the bedding and you, um, laundry stuff and towels. And we just said, let's just build a, a refugee center as fast as we can. And within an hour <laughs> of laying everything out, it was full. <laughs> it was like eating an elephant. You ever feel like when you're just like trying to tackle a problem, like we got a hundred people in a room and they're sleeping and it's the safest place they've been all week. And there's 10,000 more standing outside. <laughs> You're like, what, what do we do? How do we respond to this moment? Well, over the course of that time, that's when I even called Sam. I was like, hey, we're, we don't know exactly what we're going to do, but we're going to do something, and we're, gonna, we're mobilizing as many people as we can to get involved. And so as that kind of started happening, uh, you guys gave, uh, I don't know if, uh, can I tell them how much you guys gave? I don't know. You guys gave, you, Sam immediately sent a check for like $5,000, and I was like, I don't know if that's like secret information or like how you're, this East Coast churches get kind of weird. Yeah, no, it was your generosity. You gave that five grand. Yeah, that's awesome. We immediately bought a van. <laughs> your money was gone in 12 seconds. <laughs> um, in fact, it was kind of awesome because at the moment as the war was breaking out, you couldn't get money out over there fast enough because people were withdrawing everything. And so we, like, gathered every dollar we had, and we flew to Hungary. I flew into Hungary and with, like, a few missionaries and other people and We drove from Hungary into Romania, and in my backpack, I had like $48,000 cash, U.S. dollars cash in my backpack. And I'm like, this is the only time in the history of my driving into Romania they wanted to look in my trunk. I'm like, hey, what's up? (laughs) 
They just looked and were like, oh, he's just backpacks. They closed it. We took that over. That 5000 went immediately into a bank in a, a church kind of like this in Romania. It's like, let's work together because so, you need to have all the licenses and stuff to buy vans. And so they let us start registering vans in their name. And as fast as we could, we're buying vans and we're buying up supplies and we're helping the refugees. But then the people on our team started to be like, we need to go in. <laughs> people are fleeing and yet they're being compelled to go in. <laughs> and so... We, with the seven vans we were able to purchase in that first week, and those are all the ones that are registered right now, every four days now or so, we have um, driving teams. We have about 40 to 50 volunteers out in Romania at any given point. It's our missionaries. It's people like you that said, I can drive a stick shift, and I'm willing to go in. And we have this list of people. And so every, like, two or three weeks, we're rotating through them. And, and this is ongoing at this exact moment. Today, we were able to take in a, 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 a van load of insulin. <laughs> Insulin is the, the factory that, like, the insulin comes from was uh, blown up. <laughs> and so people inside Ukraine don't have this, and, and people are dying. I've been getting calls, or we've all been getting calls from people that are like, we're in this part, and we have 200 uh, orphans, and we can't feed them for more than three more days, and then we're out. Can you get it to us? And we're like, you can't go to some regions, and, like, Russia has it all blocked off in some areas. And so we're trying to be really intentional and wise, but also get stuff as deep as we can. And so over those weeks now, we have drivers going in into Ukraine uh, as far east as they can. We've been within a couple kilometers of where the active war front is. And so you're getting to where, like, you're get passing checkpoints. And to, to drive from Cluj, Romania, into Kiev, with all the checkpoints you have to go through, is about, a, I think, a 16 to 20-hour drive. And so you fill up these vans, <laughs> you get a team of 12 people, you get them on the road, and it takes them a day and a half to get in. The church inside that we've been delivering aid to, you'll see it in this video I'm going to show. There's a guy named Wayne. He's a, an Australian guy who's a missionary there. He's like, the most helpful thing you can do is be consistent. He was like, one-time aid is awesome, but if you could come like on a set day each week, that would literally save lives because we can plan on how to get it out and how to get it into other cars and smuggle it over here. And so our team is like, we're in. <laughs> we have no idea how we're going to sustain this, but we're in because we know that by doing this, we're building trust and depth of relationship with people <laughs> so that we can share the hope of Jesus with them. And our perspective is not that we're doing this for the next six months until the war ends. We're going to be there for decades. <laughs> Like Ukraine and Romania is now a place where we're at. If Lord's called you to go as a missionary to Romania, then come talk to me immediately because we need families that can settle in there for the next decade and help us build off of the trust we're establishing right now. So our team is driving in every, every day and taking supplies and taking food. And, and some of these guys are like, really feel called to go, we just call them like the green, yellow, and red zones. Green zones is like, they're clear, there's like the Ukrainian army controls them. The yellow zones is like you're driving, but there's landmines everywhere. Um, you're, the red zones is just like you're going through Russian checkpoints and you, we have friends, none of our team, but we have friends doing this exact thing who have been shot and killed in the last like two weeks. <laughs> because it's, it's, that, it's that level of reality and danger, and yet the gospel demands that we go and respond. And so I'm going to show you this video, but I want to give you a little context. The song you're going to hear, the big Ukrainian national anthem, that's what wakes them up in the morning because it signals that curfew at night has ended. And by the time it plays at the, in the evening, you have to be inside. The, the, the curfew begins. And, so, and then at the end, there's an a, a a siren, like an air raid siren. That's not like when we got offline. That's like what our team is like recording as they're there. They're waking up to air raid sirens as they're bringing boxes of food, and yet uh, the, uh, 
it, it's shocking to me the, the boldness and the authority people operate in when they understand the gospel, and that's the reason they'll take aid in. Not because it's bringing temporary aid, but because they're going, if, if I die taking aid to people, but they hear about Jesus, that's worth every mile we had to drive, right? And so watch this quick little one-minute video. this and you will continue to use this for dozens of people. Pastor Wayne, the guy who was praying in that in that basement, <laughs> I'm going to be going over there in two weeks to go have meetings with him and a few other churches to continue looking at how we continue advancing further east. And our team is over there serving right now. But his perspective, even, I love that they put that line in the video. Like, you have used this and you will continue to use this? How do you stand there under an air raid siren knowing that God is working in this moment? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to handle the emotional response to that. And yet the, the people who understand the gospel and are standing there are saying, this is a moment we can share Jesus. <laughs> and the, the food, the food we hand somebody, the canned meat we're taking them, it's nothing cool. It's like canned meat and flour and cooking oil. That's like literally the stuff they need to stay alive. As we're handing them that stuff, they've been asking our team, like, aren't you afraid? And one of my guys told me, he's, he just, he just replied like this. He said, well, aren't you afraid of starving? <laughs> like, and like that quick-witted response to just go, I, I, it's not about what I'm afraid of right now. Like we care about you. We need to bring you this so we can share the hope of Jesus. We will be working there for years. This is one of like the 17 countries we're working in right now. Or, or, or and, and it's like, I, I wish I could tell you about everything because God is doing astounding things all around the world. But I want to come back and end with the scripture today because that's our motivation to do things like this. And I don't know your story. I don't know who you are or where you grew up or if you're even in this room and you believe the same gospel that I'm talking about. But I, I want to tell you this. It's simple. <laughs> Have it, whether I'm throwing a guitar around and trying to tell the French team what the gospel is through a translator <laughs> or I'm standing in a room like this where I can speak clearly in English and assume that a lot of you understand me. The gospel is this, is that the God who created the universe, he put the stars in the sky, he put billions of stars in the sky, it says that he knows the number of hairs on your head. That God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. He had nails pushed into his, into his hands and into his side and a thorn, crown of thorns pushed into his head and he bled and he died because of you and I. So that we could have a restored relationship with God. Because sin separates us from God. And that restored relationship is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead. Some of you might have heard this before. It says what? We're saved. <laughs> That's the gospel we preach because sometimes you only have one paragraph. 
to share the hope of Jesus with someone. (laughs) Jesus transforms us, and so we have to go respond. I guess my challenge and invitation to you as a church in this last few minutes together is that as we even read this story of Zacchaeus, view it through the lens of how transformative that encounter and that moment with Jesus is. Our understanding of the gospel should cause a response within us. I believe a response is inevitable. We will either reject the gospel. Romans 1 says that men is, are suppressing the truth. They're covering it up and hiding it. And, and you and I get to either watch people respond or, or deny the gospel. Our job is to preach it. Our job is to share it. And I, I believe firmly that that needs to be an audible thing. <laughs> it's, it's one thing for us to show up and just like hope that they understand we're doing all of this aid because we love Jesus. It's another to say we're doing this because we love Jesus. And he loves you and he died on a cross for you. Our response, whether it's in our homes with our kids or in a war zone, should be the exact same thing. <laughs> we do everything we're doing through the lens of how Jesus has transformed us. I'm going to tell you or read this story. It's Luke 19 verses 1 through 10. And it's, it's a brief story. But I want you to just hear what the gospel does in Zacchaeus' life. And I want you to hear how Jesus, I'm giving the ending away here, looks at Zacchaeus. To me, that's the thing that stood out the most in this story is when Jesus walks by Zacchaeus and he looks at him. He says, hey, come down. <laughs> the goofy analogy I have in my own life is I, I'm a golf nerd. Like, anybody play golf here? Okay. I had the opportunity to go to the President's Cup in Australia once. And Tiger Woods was playing, and everybody was playing, and we were there for something, and it was like an hour away. We're like, we could get a ticket and go. <laughs> and so we drove down, or we got there, and we, we got our ticket, and we got in. And as a golfer, like, there's some really critical golfers in the world. <laughs> and we were like, Tiger Woods is playing? I might not ever get to watch Tiger Woods play again in my life. So we would do this. We would, like, strategize where we were going to be. <laughs> on the golf course. Okay, there's 18 holes. He's going to start at one. He's going to play all of them. We should be like waiting at the end of hole two so we can watch him putt, you know. And then let's, okay, let's run across. We had the map and we're like, let's go over here and watch him like tee off it in this spot. And so, the whole, and you could tell everybody there, that was the whole strategy because like they would putt and everybody would just sprint like, like, you can't run, but everybody's like speed walking across the golf course. Get to the end. So there was a couple times, like I remember once being like this close from Tiger, watching him pick his club and talk to his caddy, and I was just like, this is insane. (laughs) I've only seen this guy on TV. He's a phenomenal golfer. I don't care about his personal life in this moment. But (laughs) some of you are like, well, you like Tiger Woods? Wow. Why don't you like Bubba Watson? He loves Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Only a golfer would actually even care that I said that. But um, I'm watching this happen, and imagine if in that moment he had turned around and he said, Andy, you want to get lunch after this? I'd, I'd have peed my pants. <laughs> like, because that would have been such a shocking moment because I'd strategically placed myself just to look at him. <laughs> this is what's happening in this story. Zacchaeus is sprinting ahead, finding a way. He, it says he's short. And so I have, I'm a tall guy. I have many short friends. I'm jealous of you because I ride planes a lot and you get to just fit in a plane seat if you're shorter. Irrelevant to the story. Um, Zacchaeus sprints ahead, he climbs a tree, and he's watching, right? And so we're going to read this story. He entered Jericho and was passing through, he being Jesus, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, 
But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. <laughs> these are the people watching. These are the disciples. These are all these people that are like, what? what? Why is he doing that? He's gone in to the, be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, meaning he's been put into the family of God. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The mission of Christ is clear. It is static. It will not change until the return of Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. Now, as people who understand the gospel and whose lives get, get transformed, that his mission needs to become ours. The mission of Christ becomes ours when we understand the gospel and when we respond. I love in this story, the two pieces I want to point out because we're short on time, is that Jesus walks by and he looks up at Zacchaeus. You and I are probably not intrinsically built to just look towards people, right? We're selfish people. I have a small baby. If you say kids are born basically good, you are wrong. Like, they are sinners. <laughs> From day one, mine, mine, ah, ah, mine. They throw their food off. You're like, what? I was, yeah, I'm feeding you. My point being that we are born with a nature that is not gospel orientated. But because of the gospel, it transforms who we are. Zacchaeus literally says, because of this single encounter with the person of Jesus, I'm going, his, his entire nature switched. He went from greedy, selfish, thieving to being the most generous person you could imagine. That occurred because of an encounter with Jesus. That encounter with Jesus that transformed his life, gave him an eternal hope. That's the reason we do the things we do. And as the church, my challenge to you would be that we step up. <laughs> Not like in a challenge, like double dog, dirty dare you kind of challenge, but I think the gospel demands a response from us. If you're in this room and you've heard the gospel now, you get to either reject it or partake in it alongside us. We're doing things like Ukraine <laughs> because it creates opportunity. We're, but also, this demand for response should manifest itself in your home or in your coworkers' lives. Like, be people who are generous. Be people who are opposite of what they know you to be before. <laughs> By doing that, you, you bear witness to the fact that the gospel is true. <laughs> I once got chosen to be on a jury. And again, I'm, I'm sounding like a real dork the more I talk. Like, that was really exciting to me. Um, I was like, yes, I love this. And so I got to be in there. And I think the thing I walked away with the most was the authoritative power of someone's testimony. You see it in the TV shows or when you, if you've ever sat there, it's what someone says that either incriminates or frees someone. Their witness that they're bearing to what happened. You and I get to be the authoritative witness to who Jesus is, how he transforms our nature, and how the gospel changes our view on the world and on our families and on the people around us. Does that make sense? Can I any more boldly say it, guys? Our job as the church is to bear witness to who Jesus is, to be transformed people living opposite of the way the rest of the world is, and doing things like humanitarian aid through the lens of eternity. That's how the gospel changes us. That's why we live on mission. That's why if you're throwing a guitar or pouring latte art or delivering insulin into Kiev, you're doing the exact same thing. <laughs> 
with the exact same motives, right? I, I think if nothing else, yeah, I'll, I just want to challenge you to be the church in this moment, to step up. Maybe it's the smallest things. Maybe it's you go home and you restore a relationship that's broken. <laughs> Maybe you and your wife are in an argument or, or your family member or your cousin or something, and the grandest witness you can be to the gospel changing you is to go and apologize <laughs> by stepping in and saying, I wronged you, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're going to create an opportunity for them to go, you've had that bitterness in your heart for 12 years. Why now? Well, because Jesus loved me, my response needs to be to love you, and that requires forgiveness. Does that make sense? It can be the smallest relationship-restoring things, which is why Zacchaeus is, like, the evidence of the, his transformation is he restores relationships that he'd thieved from. We get to do it in forgiving others and stepping up to put all our cash together and send supplies into the east of Ukraine where we're, we don't even know what happens sometimes with those people who eat the food that we take in. <laughs> we don't know that, but we know we are creating a window of opportunity to share the gospel for the next 30 years in a country who's going to be just war-torn and need, need aid. That's the gospel lived out among us, guys. And so I guess I don't have a grand response today. It's more of a challenge, like, let's be people who live on mission, who understand the mission of Jesus, and it transforms the way we see other people. Thank you so much. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.